This is Guns and Butter. Politically, I think there is a very strong totalitarian threat embedded in climate change, and this is easiest to see in many poor countries whose ecosystems are as fragile as their traditions of democracy. It is not hard to foresee governments resorting to permanent states of martial law in the face of floods and droughts and epidemics of disease and incursions of environmental refugees. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ross Gilbspan and Randy Hayes from presentations at the December 2004 Marin County Environmental Event, Boiling Point. This event was produced by Dr. Michael Dietrich and Sustainable Marin and also included presentations from other leading environmentalists, activists, and local political leaders. In attendance were city council members from Novato, San Rafael, and Fairfax, members of the Marin County Board of Supervisors, and the President and International Vice President of the Sierra Club. We begin with Randy Hayes. Randy Hayes is the Sustainability Director for the City of Oakland. He is the founder of Rainforest Action Network and has spent two decades pressuring huge companies not to destroy tropical forests from Central America to Indonesia. Many of you in this room I know have met David Brower, and some of you got to know him quite well. I was pissing and moaning about you know, corporations and trying to get them to change at one point in time, and David told me a little story that I just can't and don't want to forget. You know, He said, imagine that there's a, a lake, and out in the middle of the lake there's this boat, and it's on fire, and it's full of people, and those people don't know how to swim. And you're screaming at them from on shore, hey, get out of the boat, get out of the boat, it's on fire. You know, you're just not going to get a lot of cooperation. But if you pull up next to it with an alternative for them to step onto, you're going to get a lot more cooperation, right? So that to me is a fundamentally important story. We've got to have the alternative to uh, present. And Ross Gelbspan tonight is going to give us a lot of flesh to the bone of that alternative. David also told another story about the great ecological U-turn, or at least he would talk about the great ecological U-turn. And there's a person named Teddy Goldsmith, some of you may know about, who even wrote a book, I think, 20 years ago called The U-Turn. David Brower's story on that was, if you're standing on the edge of a precipice and you're about to fall off into oblivion, the solution to your dilemma is not that complex. Turn around and go a fundamentally different direction. And... A few years ago, when I was in Japan during the negotiations of the Kyoto Protocol, we organized a protest, actually, which was uh, Al Gore, read your book. Uh, but, but that aside for the moment. And he did finally sign it, so good for Al, he read his book. Over there in Kyoto, I realized that despite the faults in the Kyoto Protocol and the Climate Change Convention, it fundamentally represents the great ecological U-turn. If you think about it in terms of You know, the benchmarking is at 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions, and they're on a linear trajectory getting worse over time, right? But what it says is that also over time, the United States is supposed to get to 7% below 1990 levels by the year 2012. Well, to do that, you've got to fundamentally reverse your direction. So in many respects, solving the climate change problem 
is that great ecological U-turn that will not only solve that problem, but if we do it right, many other problems hand-in-hand with it. There's a solution scenario connected to solving this problem called the Apollo Alliance that I also know many of you are familiar with. And it's an alliance of not just environmental groups and the vast diversity of environmental justice and environmental health and, and other forms of the environmental movement, but it's an alliance with the, the labor unions and with the business community and with faith communities, and it's a very exciting solution scenario that uh, we all need to get to know better and to get behind. The story of the Apollo project back in 1961, you'll know as well, with President Kennedy saying simply, the goal is to get to the end of the moon and back by the end of the decade. We don't know how to do it necessarily, but that's the goal. And we need to become sort of a zero-emission society. That's the goal, energy and, and otherwise. We don't necessarily know how to do all of the program of the Apollo Alliance, and I don't have the time tonight to go into the detail, but the website is just apolloalliance.org. But it's a kind of an alliance that really integrates ecology, economy, and social equity considerations. They're talking about generating as much as 3 million new jobs. And not just jobs, but meaningful employment, or what the Buddhists like to say is right livelihood through that process. And you've got advisors to the Apollo Alliance, people from the United Steelworkers and the Sierra Club and Jesse Jackson and our state treasurer, Phil Angelides, and a diversity of other kinds of people all working together to really make this happen. But for it to really happen, and some of what I feel like I've learned in the last couple of decades of internal and external activism and agitation, is that at the international level, through the United Nations and the international conventions, be it the Climate Change Convention or the Biodiversity Convention, we just simply know that it's not getting the job done. Now, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't give up on those processes, but it alone is not getting the job done. And we certainly know that national governments, you know, in the late 60s, we knew that fundamental to building a sustainable society is how you power it. And don't power it with non-renewable resources. Power it with renewable resources. That's not very complex. We had that figured out at the end of the 60s. But national governments aren't getting that job done either. So if you can't solve the problem at the international level, and you can't solve the problem at the national level, and it's not just the United States in terms of national governments, it's Denmark, it's Argentina, it's Indonesia, it's worldwide, national governments are not rising to the occasion to shoulder their responsibility to solve these problems, then we've got to take it into our own hands locally. And we can do that. And that, to me, is really very exciting. There are really heroic efforts going on right here in Northern California, the home of John Muir and David Brower and so many others. I won't go into the details of them, but, you know, be it Sonoma County that we'll hear a little bit about, uh, right here in Marin County with the update of the general plan, San Francisco and some of their heroic work in Oakland and other communities throughout the Bay Area, we're raising hundreds of millions of dollars in energy efficiency bonds and solar bonds. We're looking at megawatt shaving plans through energy efficiency in a lot of these communities. Tide power, you could put the equivalent of three giant coal-fired power plants underneath the Golden Gate Bridge to harness the power of the tide there. We could power the entire Bay Area from just the Bay itself with renewable energy. There's community choice aggregation we're going to hear about where we can disconnect from these utility companies who haven't shouldered their responsibilities. And we're looking at targets and timelines, the very specific things the United States government fought against at the last UN Earth Summit in South Africa 
we're looking at things like, can we achieve 40%, maybe 50% of our electricity renewably by the year 2017? Can we get to a 75% reduction of waste to our landfills, which is a very much an energy issue, energy-related issue as well, by 2010? and zero waste by 2020. Can we get to 100% renewable electricity by the year 2030? San Francisco has designed such a program to do that, and Oakland is working on one right now as well. Can we double mass transit in some communities, quadruple it by the year 2040? And can we achieve not a 7% reduction of greenhouse gases that the Kyoto Protocol calls for, but can we achieve a 70% reduction of greenhouse gases by the year 2050? Because that is what the scientists, though Ross may give us an update on that, that's what they're saying is, is commensurate with the scale of the problem. And I think that we can pilot that right here in uh, Northern California in the Bay Area. And not only begin to do that really methodically and systematically ourselves, but some of you may know, many of you may not know, that in the summer of this coming year, June of 2005, the communities of Northern California have invited the mayors of the 100 largest cities of the world to come to a five-day Green City Symposium at the culmination of with, this will be June 1 to 5, here in, in San Francisco and with events throughout the Bay Area, culminating on June 5th, World Environment Day, UN World Environment Day. We celebrate Earth Day. The rest of the world does a different day. There's not too unexpected there. At any rate, on June 5th, it'll culminate in the 60-year anniversary of the signing of the UN Charter, which, as you know, was signed here in San Francisco in the Bay Area some 60 years ago, and also the signing of the Northern California Urban Environmental Accords, where we'll be looking at working with cities around the world to set these kinds of high common denominators. Because if we can't get the job done at the international level or at the national level, then our communities will take charge of that, and we will work synergistically with the communities throughout the world. If you look at just the mayors of the 100 largest cities of the world, 20 of those cities are from China. 10 of them, I'm rounding off a bit, 10 of them are from India, 10 of them are from Indonesia, 10 of them are from Brazil. That's about 50 of the cities there, and all 100 cities represent 20% of humanity. 2004, this very year, marks the year, the first year in human history where more people now live in urban areas than rural areas. So urban areas are the place to deliver the solutions. And if we can get, continue to get our communities to rise up, shoulder this responsibility, doing it in a systematic way and working with the communities and cities throughout the world, we'll get the job done. We'll orchestrate that great ecological U-turn, and we will build that socially just, better world in our lifetimes. Thank you. One of Randy Hayes' current major projects is Jumpstart Ford at www.jumpstartford.org to stop Detroit and the automobile industry from contributing to global warming. He can be reached by calling the Rainforest Action Network at 415-398-4404. Keynote speaker Ross Gelbspan is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. He is author of two books on the coming climate crisis, The Heat is On and Boiling Point. Ross Gelbspan was a reporter and editor for 31 years at the Philadelphia Bulletin, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. He discusses the coming climate crisis and what can be done locally and globally to limit this crisis.
thank you all so very much for your hospitality. I'm a uh, journalist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an environmentalist. Uh, I must say that I've spent a number of uh, time with some very prominent climate scientists, and these women and men are very impressive. They're meticulous in their methodology. They're exemplary in their uh, professional integrity. They're extremely creative in their variety of approaches by which they approach this problem. By contrast, of course, we journalists are trained from birth to distort and sensationalize and oversimplify. So if there are any scientists in the room, forgive me in advance for mangling all your fine work. I'm also not an environmentalist. I didn't get involved with this issue because I love the trees. I tolerate the trees. I got involved because I found out that the uh, coal industry was paying some scientists under the table to say this isn't happening. And that got me quite upset because I had devoted um, 30 years of my career to the belief that in a democracy we need honest information and then we will somehow uh, muddle forward through our, uh, our history. So... What I'd like to do is basically give you a journalist overview of the subject. It's hard to get people focused on climate change today, not only because it's been misrepresented as a future problem, but because there's so much competition from other problems. We're very apprehensive about the aftermath of the Iraq war. This trick-or-treat economy is as unnerving to investors as it is cruel to workers. I think the country's more deeply polarized than at any time in memory. So I think it's very important to understand that climate change is not just another issue in this complicated world of proliferating issues. Climate change is the issue which, unchecked, will swamp all other issues. Conversely, I very strongly believe that a real solution to the climate crisis contains the seeds to solutions to some of the other major problems threatening us today. I think a real solution to the climate crisis has the potential to begin to mend a profoundly fractured world. A solution to the climate crisis, which is a global transition to clean energy, would reduce our dependence on oil and with it our exposure to the political volatility in the Middle East. That volatility will only become more explosive as that region approaches the exhaustion of its oil reserves. Much more important, I think, is the fact that the U.S., with 5% of the world's population, generates a quarter of its carbon emissions. And since poorer countries are much more immediately vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, our continuing indifference is very likely to prompt more anti-U.S. attacks, and the head of the IPCC echoed that warning last December. I think the real truth about terrorism is, is that aside from hardening nuclear plants and airports, there is no way to protect a highly organized, very complex society against guerrilla attacks. And in the long run, what's really needed is a major change in our posture toward developing countries. Economists tell us that every dollar invested in energy in poor countries creates far more wealth and far more jobs than the same dollar invested in any other sector. And were the U.S. to spearhead the wholesale transfer of clean energy to poor countries, that would do more in the long run than anything else to address the economic desperation that gives rise to all this uh, anti-U.S. sentiment. On the economic front, I think it's very clear that the global economy is subject to periods of stagnation. Not that long ago, some members of the Fed were even warning about deflation, which is very scary. And I think a 
proven recipe for long-term economic health has to include a component of public works programs. And what I'm going to be talking about later on is a public works program to rewire the world with clean energy. Without doubt, that would be the most productive investment we could make in our future, and within a decade, we would see a worldwide and continuing economic liftoff. Finally, of course, there is the climate itself. Unintentionally, we have set in motion massive systems of the planet with huge amounts of inertia that have kept this Earth hospitable for 10,000 years. We have heated the deep oceans. We have reversed the carbon cycle by 400,000 years. We have loosed a wave of violent weather. We've altered the timing of the seasons. We're living on an increasingly narrow margin of stability, and the evidence is all around us. From my perspective as a journalist, the climate crisis clusters three dimensions. It's natural dimension, it's energy dimension, and it's economic dimension. Its natural dimension is really of cosmic proportions. The 10 hottest years on record have happened since 1990. The five hottest consecutive years are 91 through 95. 98 replaced 97 is the hottest year on record. 2001 replaced 97 is number two. It was replaced by 2002, which was tied by 2003. Scientists determined recently that the decade of the 90s was the hottest at least in the last millennium and the planet is heating at a rate faster than at any time in the last 10,000 years. Its energy dimension is really staggering to contemplate. Basically, to allow the climate to restabilize requires nothing less than replacing every oil-burning furnace, every coal-burning generating plant, every gasoline-burning car with climate-friendly and renewable energy sources. Our fossil fuels have brought us to a level of prosperity that was unimaginable a century ago. Today, they're propelling us forward into a century of disintegration. The final dimension, which is the economic one, centers around this widening global fault line that threatens to split humanity irreparably between rich and poor. And the impact of this global economic inequity on the climate has nothing to do with justice or morality or ethics. It rests on a real simple fact. If tomorrow we in the U.S. and Europe and Canada and Australia, if we were to cut our emissions dramatically, those cuts would be overwhelmed by the coming pulse of carbon from India and China and Mexico and Nigeria and all the developing countries struggling to stay ahead of poverty. We simply cannot deal with the climate crisis without addressing this issue of global economic inequity, at least in the area of energy resources. As you know, the governments of the world have been trying for the last nine years to negotiate emissions reductions of 6 and 7 percent, but as people have pointed out, a larger reality is, is being ignored. The science is unambiguous. Climate stabilization requires worldwide cuts of 70 percent, and that, I think, is a challenge whose magnitude we've never faced before. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the science. We can have questions about it later if you'd like. But the facts underneath the science are very simple. Carbon dioxide traps in heat. For the last 10,000 years, we've had the same amount, 280 parts per million, until about 150 years ago when the world began to industrialize. That 280 is now up to about 380. That is a level this planet has not experienced for 420,000 years. Unchecked, it will double later in the century to 560, and that correlates with an increase in the average global temperature of 3 to 10 degrees, and for context, the last ice age was only 
five to nine degrees colder than our current climate. Each year we're putting about seven billion tons of carbon into an atmosphere whose upper extent is about 10 miles overhead. The first consequence of the very small warming that we've seen, and it's only warmed by one degree, is basically a forcing of the planet's hydrological cycle. And that's expressing itself in altered rainfall patterns, more severe protracted droughts, more frequent heat waves, more intense storms, and the fact that we're getting much more of our rain and snow in these intense severe downpours. The best evidence for this is a relentless succession of extreme weather events that have been increasing in frequency and intensity all over the world for the past uh, couple of decades. I want to give you a couple of examples from last year, 2003. Southern Australia has just gone through the uh, second year of its worst drought in history. That drought has decimated crops, it's cut farm incomes in half, and it's left fears that this is a new permanent condition. In February, hot, dry weather triggered 700 wildfires in the Amazon rainforest, which, as you know, is a very wet area. In March, the heaviest snowstorm in a century dumped 53 inches of snow on Denver in five days. That May, the Midwestern U.S. was battered by 384 tornadoes in one week, which were attributed by the U.N. to changes in the climate. And, of course, last summer's heat wave in Europe left more than 30,000 people dead. This May, 2004, one storm dumped more than five feet of rain in 36 hours in an area of southern Haiti. This summer's monsoons left 30 million people homeless in South Asia. These four hurricanes that swept through Florida were definitely intensified by warming surface waters. I want to talk very briefly about what's happening in Australia and about the heat deaths because they're a little bit different from um, these other weather extremes. One of the consequences of a warming atmosphere is that it tightens the vortex of the polar winds. There are winds that swirl around the North Pole and the South Pole, and as the atmosphere warms, these winds become more intense and they retract. They don't reach as far down. What that's doing in the North, where the landmass sort of reaches up into the Arctic Circle, is basically causing more severe temperature gradients, which are causing these clashing weather fronts. In Australia, where there's a large body of water between Australia and Antarctica, this water, which normally evaporates and then rains down over New South Wales, is being sucked by these winds back into Antarctica, where the glaciers are building up and causing this kind of permanent drought. In terms of the heat wave in Europe, I'm sure there have been heat waves in the past that have been as long and as hot, but without so many fatalities. One of the key findings of climate scientists is as the planet's temperature is going up, the nighttime low temperatures are rising twice as fast as the daytime high temperatures because the carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases are trapping the heat in overnight. And what that means is that when a person's body becomes heat stressed during the daytime, they're not getting the normal nighttime cooling to recuperate unless they have air conditioning. And that's, I think, why we're seeing so many fatalities. You can see the economic consequences of these weather extremes in two areas. You can see them in the rising disaster relief budgets of governments, and you can see them particularly in the escalating losses to the world's property insurers. The insurance industry lost an average of $2 billion a year in the 1980s to this weather. It lost an average of $12 billion a year in the 1990s. In 1998 alone, the insurance industry lost $89 billion to extreme weather, which is more than they lost in the entire decade of the 80s. 
And the head of the trade association said to me that unless something is done to stabilize the climate, it could very well bankrupt the entire industry. In case you don't have a particular soft spot in your hearts for the insurance industry, the uh, stakes are actually much larger than that. The U.S. recently projected that within this decade, the global economy will lose $150 billion a year to climate impacts. Munich Reinsurance, the biggest one of these companies, has said that figure will be $300 billion a year within the next couple of decades. And the biggest insurer in Britain has said that unchecked climate change could bankrupt the global economy by the year 2065. Politically, I think there is a very strong totalitarian threat embedded in climate change, and this is easiest to see in many poor countries whose ecosystems are as fragile as their traditions of democracy. It is not hard to foresee governments resorting to permanent states of martial law in the face of floods and droughts and epidemics of disease and incursions of environmental refugees. There was a story on the wires a couple of years ago out of Papua New Guinea They had a long spell of bizarre weather, drought and frost. And after four months of this weather, 700,000 people left their homes. They began wandering the countryside in search of food and water. The government threw up its hands and said, we can't deal with this. Fortunately, Australia came to their aid, but it's an illustration of what I'm talking about. I think the escalation of climatic instability has very anti-democratic potentials for the countries of the North as well. It will cause big job loss. It will shrink foreign markets. It will impair the flow of industrial commodities from abroad. This is not the kind of climate in which democracy flourishes. This is the kind of climate that gives rise to food shortages with its associated black market crime. It could very well lead to the militarization of disaster relief personnel. I have in my office a study by the CIA, which is assessing the potential for political upheaval from climate-related disruptions. And as many of you know, last year the Pentagon released a major planning scenario detailing mass migrations, wars, and all kinds of political chaos that could result from a rapid climate change event. And what's really important about that document is that it reclassifies climate change away from being an environmental problem to being a national security threat. You're listening to journalist and author Ross Gelbsfan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I want to go through one more body of evidence, and this has nothing to do with computer models and nothing to do with weather. These are physical changes that are taking place on the planet as we sit here. Uh, Warming expands water. Right now, officials are relocating 40,000 people from their island homes off New Guinea because those islands are going under from rising sea levels. Heat changes ecosystems. While earlier studies have documented the migration of birds and fish, there were two studies in the journal Nature last year that found that plants, birds, insects, animals, and whole ecosystems all over the world are migrating toward the poles in search of temperature stability. Warming is also increasing in the deep oceans. There were two studies out in 2001 that found warming as far down as two miles deep, which is rather incredible considering the inertia of the oceans. And that's doing two things. It's increasing the frequency of these El Ninos that play havoc with weather all over the world. The El Nino that ended in 95 lasted for five years and eight months. That is a one in 2,000 year event. And the El Nino that followed it is the most severe on record. This deep ocean warming is also causing the breakup of big pieces of Antarctic ice shelves. 
three pieces larger than the size of Rhode Island have broken off since 1995. And last November, a big piece of the Arctic ice shelf that was 3,000 years old broke off. The oceans are also becoming acidified from the fallout of our carbon fuels. Scientists reported recently that the pH level of the oceans has changed more in the last 100 years than it did in the previous 10,000. High above the oceans, most of the world's glaciers are retreating at accelerating rates. The biggest glacier in the Andes Mountains 20 years ago was shrinking by 14 feet a year. Today, it's retreating by 99 feet a year. The biggest glacier on the planet, which is the Greenland Ice Sheet, for the last decade has been losing three cubic miles of ice a year. That is enough to cover the state of Maryland with ice a foot thick. The tundra in Alaska, which for thousands of years has absorbed methane and carbon dioxide, now is thawing and releasing those gases back into the atmosphere. And we've actually changed the timing of the seasons. Because of the buildup of CO2, spring now arrives more than two weeks earlier in the northern hemisphere than it did 20 years ago. And as my friend Bill McKibben points out, what that means is by accident, we are changing the rhythms of nature by which we have lived our lives and planted our crops and written our poetry for 10,000 years. The last one of these physical impacts I wanted to talk about has to do with human health. Global warming is not good for us. The most obvious impact comes from heat itself, witnessed last year's heat deaths in Europe, and the UN recently projected a doubling of heat-related deaths in the world's cities in the next 20 years. There is another more complex biological mechanism, and that involves the spread of infectious disease. Warming accelerates the breeding rates and the biting rates of insects. It accelerates the maturation of the pathogens they carry. It allows them to live longer at higher altitudes and higher latitudes. So we are now seeing mosquitoes spread malaria and dengue and yellow fever to populations that have never before experienced them. Globally, malaria quadrupled between 1995 and 2000. In coastal Massachusetts, near where I live, there's been a big increase in tick-borne Lyme disease because except for last winter from hell, we haven't had these killing frosts that kill off the ticks during the winter, and so doctors are reporting a big increase in Lyme disease. The British medical journal, The Lancet, citing this coming proliferation of warming-driven diseases, recently called indifference to climate change a form of biopolitical terrorism. So the consequences to our social existence are truly profound. And as one world-class scientist who is a co-chair of the IPCC said to me, if this unstable climate we are now beginning to see had begun 150 years ago, the planet would not be able to support its current population. So for me, this is sort of the central drama underlying the climate crisis. And basically, it pits the ability of this planet to support civilization versus the survival of one of the largest commercial enterprises in history. The oil and coal industries together generate more than a trillion dollars a year in commerce. They support the economies of more than a dozen nations. And in this battle, their resources are virtually without limit. For the last about 12 years, the fossil fuel lobby has mounted a very effective campaign of deception and disinformation, almost exclusively inside the U.S., to persuade the public and policymakers that this issue is stuck in uncertainty. That campaign, for the longest time, attacked the science. And in so doing, it marginalized the findings of more than 2,000 scientists from 100 countries reporting to the U.N., 
in what is the largest and most rigorously peer-reviewed scientific collaboration in history. That same campaign has also misrepresented the economics of an energy transition, and now with its new champion in the White House, it's attempted to demolish the diplomatic foundations of the Climate Convention, and it has been extremely successful in maintaining a drumbeat of doubt in the public mind. Uh, I want to give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. I think in uh, Western Fuels was a $400 million coal operation, and in its annual report about 10 years ago, it was very candid. It said it was out to attack mainstream science. It enlisted three uh, scientists who were skeptical about this issue, Fred Singer, Pat Michaels, and Bob Balling. Western Fuels and some other coal utilities then uh, launched a public relations campaign that sent these three scientists around the country to do a lot of media interviews and talks and so forth. We got a copy of the strategy papers for that campaign, and it said very specifically the campaign was designed to reposition global warming as theory rather than fact, and more specifically, it was designed to target older, less educated men and young, low-income women in districts that get their electricity from coal and preferably have a representative on the House Energy Committee. We also learned that these three scientists received about a million dollars under the table from the coal industry over a three-year period, which they never disclosed publicly until we published it. This campaign was followed by a quarter of a million dollar video that got very, very wide exposure. Somewhere in between, the argument changed. First time around, they said global warming isn't happening, but with this video, they said it's good for us. And the argument that the video makes is, as we get more warming, we can grow more food in the far north and help feed an expanding population. And to an uninformed viewer, that sounds pretty good. Unfortunately, there are a couple of omissions in this video, and the first one, as I sort of teased before, is the bugs. Because of all the systems of nature, one of the most sensitive to temperature change is insects. And all the relevant scientists agree that as the temperature rises, we will see a big increase in the population of crop-destroying and disease-spreading insects. There is another omission that I think is even more unconscionable, and that's this. As the temperature goes up and we get, uh, temporarily at least, a longer growing season in North America, that same increase will have a devastating effect on the food crops in the tropical regions where most of the world's poor and hungry people live. A half-degree increase will cause a big drop-off in the rice yields in Southeast Asia. It'll cause a 20 to 30 percent decline in the wheat yield of India. This is stuff that the video doesn't mention. This manufactured denial is by far the biggest obstacle facing all of us at work on this issue today. This is the predictable outcome of this kind of a disinformation campaign that was launched more than a decade ago by the coal industry and is now being carried forward by ExxonMobil, which has spent more than $13 million in the last five years to finance these pseudoscientists. We had some fun with one of these skeptics a couple of years ago, Fred Singer. Fred declared in a letter to the Washington Post that he had not accepted any oil money for 20 years since he did some consulting job for an oil company. Whereupon we published an article in The Nation saying he got about 75000 from ExxonMobil in 1998. And lest you think this was some ingenious feat of investigative reporting, it happened to be on ExxonMobil's website. Of course... <laughs> They took the page down soon after the article ran. But this is far more serious than a cheap thrill of gotcha journalism. 
In the early 90s, when the science was still uncertain, this kind of response could have been forgiven as a business-as-usual response. But with the science having become so robust and the impact so visible, I really am beginning to regard this as a crime against humanity. To me, as a journalist, this goes way beyond the normal... Thank you. To me, as a journalist, this goes way beyond the normal reach of public relations spin. To me, what this represents is basically an attempt to privatize truth. The industry-sponsored skeptics are fond of uncertainties. They uh, have pointed out a lot of uncertainties, but they've used them in a very selective and misleading way. Here's what I think the truth is about uncertainty. Carbon dioxide stays up there for 100 years. If we could magically stop all our coal and oil burning tomorrow, we would still be subject to a long spell of costly and traumatic weather extremes. Moreover, new research shows that prehistoric climate changes have happened not as gradual transitions, but as very abrupt shifts. And that very small changes in a very, very delicately balanced atmosphere can produce very large outcomes. So, not only are we gambling with our futures, we are gambling with our eyes blindfolded. We can't really read the cards we've been dealt. Uh, here's some good news. Outside the U.S., there is virtually no debate in any other country in the world about what is happening to the climate. All the debates in the other countries are on the policy side. How do we change our energy systems without wrecking our economies, which is where I think the debate should be. And as evidence of this, as the U.S. was dragging its heels, even under the Clinton administration, before President Bush took us out of the Kyoto process, a number of European countries decided to go it alone. Holland has just completed a plan to cut her emissions by 80% in 40 years. Tony Blair has just committed the U.K. to cuts of 60% in 50 years. The Germans have committed to cuts of 50% in 50 years. Clearly, these governments would not be undertaking these wrenching changes if they had any doubts about the science. So I think it's very important to remember that the confusion about climate change stops at the boundaries of the United States. I also think it's very important to understand that climate change is no longer the exclusive franchise of environmentalists. For people working on this issue, I would urge you to join with groups focusing on international development and relief like Oxfam, on campaign finance reform because we're not going to get clean energy without clean elections, on public health, corporate accountability, labor, human rights, and environmental justice. There are aspects of this climate issue for every one of these constituencies. Let me speak for just a minute to the issue of justice. Climate change is nothing if not an issue of environmental justice and human rights. Secure food, uh, shelter, and the tools for basic sustenance are embedded in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and we are seeing them disrupted around the world almost on a weekly basis. Several years ago, Hurricane Mitch killed 11,000 people in Central America. No hurricane in the U.S. has ever taken that kind of toll. Last fall, the worst flooding in memory left half a million people homeless in Sri Lanka. Rising sea levels are forcing the evacuation of whole island nations. Not long ago, the president of Tuvalu, a small group of islands in the South Pacific, recently called climate change a form of slow death. There is a connection between the impending evacuation of Tuvalu, compromised immune systems in Beijing, and rising levels of asthma in our own inner cities. There is also a connection on the solution side. 
By blocking this transition to clean energy, big coal and big oil are withholding from the rest of us a huge surge in new jobs and economic growth. At the corporate level, we have seen some voluntary progress. Ford has joined with Daimler Chrysler in a billion-dollar project to develop hydrogen fuel cell cars. BP is now one of the biggest vendors of solar systems. Shell has created a new billion-dollar subsidiary in renewables. But without a strong regime of mandatory government regulation, most of these initiatives will fail, and a number of oil company presidents have said this to me off the record. Without a binding structure of regulation to level the corporate playing field, competing energy companies like ExxonMobil will undercut these initiatives. The solar, wind, and hydrogen investments by BP and Shell and so forth will become money losers. And this continuing succession of weather extremes and epidemics and insurance losses will tear holes in the global economic fabric. You're listening to journalist and author Ross Gelbspan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. With that in mind, I want to take a couple of minutes and explain the uh, solution strategies that form the centerpiece of the last chapter of this book, Boiling Point. We worked on them with a number of people. They've gotten some very good endorsements from the Environmental Commissioner of the EU, the British Ambassador to the UN, and so forth. And I want to go through them very briefly. Basically, there are three strategies, and they involve a change in energy subsidies in the industrial countries. They involve the creation of a large fund to provide clean energy to poor countries. And they involve a regulatory mechanism within the Kyoto process, which calls for every country to increase its fossil fuel efficiency by 5% a year. Uh, Let me say a couple of sentences about each. On the subsidy front, the federal government spends about $25 billion a year subsidizing coal and oil. In the industrial world overall, that figure is $200 billion. We're saying take that money away from coal and oil, put it behind renewables. The oil companies will follow the money, and they will become aggressive developers of fuel cells and solar panels and windmills. Clearly, we have to use some of that money. Thank you. Clearly, we have to use some of that money to take care of the country's 50,000 coal miners. We either need to retrain the younger ones and buy out the older ones, but that still leaves more than enough of this money for its intended purpose. Moreover, I think, if we were to have that kind of subsidy shift, it would bring out of the woodwork an army of energy entrepreneurs and engineers with successively more efficient generations of solar film and tidal devices and turbines in an explosion of creativity, I think, that would rival the dot-com revolution of the 1990s. The second element of the plan involves this large fund. It's been estimated by some energy think tanks at $300 billion a year for maybe a decade to start renewable energy infrastructures in developing countries. You can get this money from a number of sources. You can get it from a carbon tax in industrial countries. A British cabinet member proposed a tax on airline travel. What we like, one method that we like is a tax on international currency transactions. The banks are the big players in this game, and they play the yen against the euro, against the dollar, and when one goes up and the other goes down, they buy and sell. And we like this because it would bring the banks into the process to administer it. It would very much uh, work as an anti-corruption device and would also avoid the creation of a large new bureaucracy. Today, the commerce in these currency transactions is $1.5 trillion every day. 
And were we to tax them at the rate of a quarter of a penny on a dollar, that would, for technical reasons, net out to $300 billion a year for wind farms in India and solar assemblies in El Salvador and fuel cell factories in South Africa and vast hydrogen-producing farms in the deserts of the Middle East. The third and sort of unifying principle of this plan that makes it all work is this progressive fossil fuel efficiency that goes up by 5% a year. What that means is every country starts at their own baseline. They produce the same amount next year with 5% less carbon fuel, or they produce 5% more with the same amount of carbon fuel. And since no economy grows at 5% for very long, emissions reductions outpace long-term economic growth. On the ground, I think the way that would work is for the first few years, countries would reach this 5% strictly through efficiencies, just by getting the waste out of their current energy systems. And when those efficiencies became too expensive, they would then meet this 5% by using more and more renewables, all of which are 100% efficient by a fossil fuel standard, and that would begin to make the mass markets and economies of scale that would bring down their prices and make them economically competitive with coal and oil. Several oil executives have said in private to me that they can, in an orderly fashion, decarbonize their energy supplies, but they need the governments of the world to regulate them so that the whole industry can move in lockstep without any one company losing uh, market share to the rest of the industry. And we think this kind of regulation could provide that kind of mechanism. What I'm talking about here is not a traditional north-south giveaway. The fund represents the um, transfer of resources from the finance sector in the form of speculative non-productive investments into the industrial sector in the form of intensely productive, wealth-generating, job-creating investments. What I am talking about is a critical investment in our own national security. The global climate envelops all of us. And I think what's needed is the kind of thinking that gave rise to the Marshall Plan after World War II, so that today, instead of a collection of dependent and impoverished allies in Europe, we have very robust trading partners. And I think a plan of this scale, regardless of the details, would have a similar effect on developing countries. It would create millions and millions of jobs. It would raise living standards abroad without compromising ours. It would allow poor countries to grow both without regard to atmospheric limits and in many cases without the budgetary burden of imported oil. And in a very short time, it would jump the renewable energy industry into being a central driving engine of growth of the global economy. What I've been talking about here is an energy change. And while a clean energy transition would have the most dramatic impact on developing countries, it would also be a significant source of growth here as well. There was a recent report out of UC Berkeley that pointed out that investments in clean energy create far more jobs than the same investments in oil and coal development. According to economists' calculations, every million dollars spent on oil and gas exploration generates one and a half jobs. For coal mining, that figure is 4.4 jobs. By contrast, every million spent on making and installing solar water heaters generates 14 jobs. The same investment in PV panels creates 17 jobs, and the same money invested in energy from biomass and waste creates 23 jobs. Just the range in types of jobs and skills required in building a windmill is extraordinary. The real economic issue involved in the global energy transition is not cost. 
The real economic issue is whether the world has a large enough labor force to accomplish this task in time to meet nature's deadline. What I've been talking about is climate and energy, but this ignores a lot of other areas of our rapidly deteriorating biosphere. Some of my environmental friends worry that a plan whose appeal is based on wealth and commerce could be the undoing of other planetary systems whose vitality is already at risk. My own personal hunch is that changes in values frequently follow changes in technology, and the very act of addressing this problem frontally would bring home to everyone the fact that we are living on a planet with limits and we're bumping up against those limits. Ultimately, I think this kind of a uh, crash program in energy would yield a lot more than just a global fuel switch. I think it would lead inevitably to closed-loop industrial processes, to smart growth planning, to the adoption of environmental accounting in the way we calculate our wealth, and ultimately to a whole new ethic of sustainability that would transform our institutions and practices in ways we can't even imagine. Back here on Earth, of course, the reality is very different. The White House has become the East Coast branch office of ExxonMobil and Peabody Coal, and climate change has become the preeminent case study in the contamination of our political system by money. Shortly after taking office, President Bush reneged on his campaign promise to cap emissions from power plants. Um, he then released the first draft of his energy plan, which is basically a fast track to climate hell. In a really Orwellian stroke, the White House ordered the EPA to remove all references to the dangers of climate change from its website. This is not political conservatism. This is corruption disguised as conservatism. Let me give you a couple of examples. Thank you. I want to just give you a couple of examples. Peabody Coal is the world's largest coal company. For 120 years, Peabody was a privately held company. The CEO of Peabody headed up Vice President Cheney's energy transition team after the 2000 election, and that resulted in Cheney calling for up to 1,900 new power plants, most of them coal-fired. Four days after Cheney announced his plan, Peabody went public and dropped an IPO. Its stock went from 24 to 38 overnight. Another example, ExxonMobil was unhappy with some comments by Dr. Robert Watson, who was head of the IPCC, which were a little critical of the United States. So ExxonMobil sent a memo to the White House saying, please get rid of Watson, and the White House complained. ExxonMobil then handpicked the new climate negotiator for the Bush administration, who promptly announced the U.S. will not engage the Kyoto process for another 10 years. And then not long after that, the Bush administration secretly arranged to have a private right-wing group sue the White House in order to deep-six the National Assessment on Climate Change, which is a very important document put together by scientists that projects the various impacts of climate change on the United States. And, of course, the president withdrew the U.S. from the Kyoto process on the grounds that it's unfair because it exempts the developing countries from the first round of cuts. At some point, the president might stumble across the fact that it was his father who approved the exemption of the developing countries, and for good reason. We in the North have created the problem. We in the North have the resources to begin to address it. We in the North have to take the first steps, and the rest of the world will come along. The real truth is, if we in the North don't get this right, we will suffer severe environmental, political, and economic damage, whether or not we impose energy restrictions on poor countries. As one Argentine climate negotiator said, we are all in the same boat, 
and there's no way half the boat is going to sink. <laughs> Nevertheless, political conditions have changed significantly in the last couple of years. A number of political conservatives are now very actively embracing this issue. William F. Buckley has written, this is not an Al Gore issue. We are really producing too many carbon emissions for the world to accommodate. A couple of years ago, Jim Woolsey, former head of the CIA and Senator Richard Lugar from Indiana, wrote a very important piece in Foreign Affairs talking about the urgency of the climate issue. Paul O'Neill, the former Treasury Secretary, has likened the coming impacts of climate change to a nuclear holocaust. And conservative Senator John McCain is taking the lead in Congress in beginning to regulate carbon dioxide. On the ground today, lots of activist groups are taking up climate as their central issue. The religious community is becoming involved in a very, very big way, led by people like Paul Gorman and Reverend Sally Bingham. And growing numbers of cities and states and universities are beginning to implement their own emissions reductions program, thanks in very large part to the dedication and the persistence and the effectiveness of ICLEI and its Cities for Climate Protection campaign. But these initiatives have to become institutionalized through the democratic process into law. All the initiatives that Paul Fenn mentioned earlier are right on point. For starters, these kind of efforts begin in however small a way to slow the speed of climate change. More important, I think, hands-on activism provides a real antidote to the kind of paralysis that can come from really apprehending the magnitude of this problem. This kind of work also provides an invaluable laboratory so that when the world is finally ready for these sweeping changes, we will know by these experiences what works and what doesn't. And finally, this community choice initiative, I think, is critical because it not only keeps afloat these renewable energy companies that are operating in a very antagonistic economic environment, but also because it's a remarkable way to turn consumer choice into political empowerment. I'm standing here and I'm promoting global-scale, macro-level solutions. They won't amount to a thing unless there is a massive upwelling of popular demand at the local level. What Paul's proposing, in addition to lots of other fine things that have been accomplished here in Marin, I think are more important for the political awareness they spread than for the emissions that they avoid. From my perspective as a journalist, social change needs to happen at every level, from individual lifestyles to community action to city and state regulations to national policies to international agreements. Today, given the corruption in the White House and the lock that the fossil fuel lobby has on Congress, I really think that the impetus for movement has to come from uncompromised local activists. Nevertheless, despite what's going on in Washington, I really think the time is right for a major offensive on the climate crisis. We have as allies most of the nations of the world, we have growing numbers of corporations, and most importantly, we have nature. Climate change is only going to get worse. But the time for action is very, very short. As I mentioned before, the oceans are warming, the tundra is thawing, the glaciers are melting, violent weather is increasing, the timing of the seasons is changing, and all that has happened from one degree of warming. And by contrast, we are now looking forward to a century of four to ten degrees of warming. I think our civilization is standing at an extraordinary cross point. And while a positive prognosis is way too visionary, I think the alternative given the escalating instability of the climate and the increasing desperation of global poverty, is really horrible to contemplate. 
My own personal hope is that given how central energy is to our existence, a really meaningful solution to this problem could be the potentially beginning of much larger changes in our social and economic dynamics. I think a, a solution that's appropriate in scale and magnitude could also provide a little pilot project to begin to put democratically determined boundaries around the operations of multinational corporations. Our, um, thank you. Our modern history has been marked by the dichotomy between the totalitarianism of command and control economies and the opulence and brutality of unregulated markets and runaway globalization. I think this issue could provide a little pilot project, a little model, to move us toward where I really think we want to go, and that's toward that optimal calibration of competition and cooperation that would maximize our energy and creativity and productivity and at the same time dramatically expand the baseline conditions for peace, peace among people and peace between people and nature. Thank you all so much for your attention. listening to Ross Gelbspan, author of The Heat is On and Boiling Point. Ross Gelbspan is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and has taught at the Columbia University School of Journalism. His website is www.heatisonline.org. That's www.heatisonline.org. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution? Which is the evolution of the mind If you seek, then you shall find That we all come from the divine You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom That are written on the walls of life Then universally we will stand And divided we will fall Because love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout with a spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side just out.